2: Hello and welcome to Barbican Screen Talks, where each month we delve into the archives to bring you conversations with some of the most prominent figures in cinema. Previous screen talks have included Ken Loach, Carol Morley, and Park Chan Wook, all recorded right here at the Barbican and available to download now. But this month's conversational gem didn't involve too deep a delve. It was recorded earlier in 2017 at the opening night of our Being Ruby Rich Film Festival, celebrating the work of new queer cinema champion, feminist film critic, educator and agitator, Be Ruby Rich. In the recording you're about to hear, we start with Rich delivering a keynote speech, introducing both the festival and a screening of director Sara Gomez's 1974 film, *The Sierra Manera. Then, we return to listen in to the lively Q&A discussion that followed, featuring Rich in conversation with interviewer Michelle Aaron. In her time, Sara Gomez was involved in exactly the kinds of new forms of address and rhetoric that B. Ruby Rich calls for in her keynote speech here. So the screening of De Manera makes perfect sense. As the debut feature of Cuba's first female director, It combines Rich's interest in Latin American cinema, feminism and the possibilities of documentary. In the film, Gomez uses both documentary and drama to depict a romance between Yolanda, a bourgeois teacher, and Mario, a factory worker. As Rich explains, its study of the interplay of race, class and gender means it is an early example of intersectionality on film, made before that now fashionable term had even been coined. Discussing the first time she saw the film in Cuba, Rich shed some light on Gomez's identity, her practice of the Catholic Yoruba religion of Santería and the circumstances of her tragic death, just a few months after the film's shoot was completed. The Sieta Manera also provides a jumping off point for Rich to discuss her developing thoughts on queer representation in cinema, to explore how online viewing platforms are changing film, and to reflect on the continuing influence of her own book, Chick Flicks Theories and Memories of the Feminist Film Movement. Have a notebook and pen to hand, because you're about to hear some viewing recommendations you'll certainly want to follow up. And now, in deference to Rich's call for a new cinema of urgency, let's get stuck in. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with B. Ruby Rich.
0: It's really wonderful to be here, and thanks to all of you for being here in such fraught times. Yesterday at Birkbeck where uh, some of us were with students and with each other in a, in a symposium, Laura Mulvey gave me this uh, key to, I th- I don't think it's just a key to my work, I think it might horrifically be a key to my life when she said that she finally figured out that our differences back in the old days had to do with my impatience, that theory was just too slow for me and that, that she now realizes that my work is characterized by an impatience with what's going on and this attempt to kind of move it forward and I I think that's um, still true. I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but I guess I'm stuck with it. It's been um, rather consistent. So, in in keeping with that notion, I had already titled this "A Cinema of Urgency." So, thus proving proving your point, Laura. But um, a cinema of urgency for rapacious times. And I think it's a word that might uh, use reviving. I don't think we're just in avaricious times. I don't think we're just in intolerable times. I think we're really in a, a time of rapaciousness with all of its meanings. And that we need a cinema, a film practice, a video practice, a visual representational practice that goes beyond what we used to ask for that goes beyond a demand for recognition, that goes beyond a space of opposition. And what might that mean? What might a cinema of urgency mean? So it's a strange time here in London when we first began discussing this. Um, It was a pre-Brexit moment in the world. The American presidential election hadn't happened yet, that the current state of things was unimaginable in those glory days before November. And um, we conceived this in those days. So there's a kind of of bizarre time travel involved in arriving here now in this changed world. And, of course, arriving here in the wake of of the Grenfell Tower fire, which is just barely more than a week ago. What does this have to do with cinema, though, Um, with your reason in mind for being here this evening in midsummer? I think it's a measure of urgency, And I have different urgencies I want to go through. And one of them is we must be enabled to see each other once again. I think part of the tragedy of Exposed by Grenfell Tower is that people who make policies today in our countries do not know the people whose lives are affected by their policies. They have no idea. And I think more generally, people do not know each other once again and that we need cinema to once again rise to that age-old function of introducing us to each other and leaping over those chasms because they really truly are chasms in these segregated spaces, these bifurcated spaces. Where does the camera go? Where does it not go? Who can be seen? Who gets to look? Who gets to speak? And I was struck by a film that I used to use in teaching, a a little film by John Grierson called Housing Problems. 1935, in which they're optimistically talking about how all this problem of the slums is going to be solved by this new ho- these new housing blocks that are going to be put up, which of course then either get demolished or turn into what, what exists today. And his sister, who I'm always very fond of and, and wrote briefly about in chick flicks, named Ruby, Ruby Grierson, was adamantly against John Grierson's way of looking at people. And she said, you know, you have a problem, John. You look at people as if they're in a goldfish bowl. And he was very amenable and said, yes, yes, of course. What's wrong with that? And she said, well, I'm going to smash your goldfish bowl. And he allowed her to do that. She was the reason that the microphone got handed to the tenants in housing problems to speak directly about their own lives without someone else just simply droning on about them. And so I'm reminded also of the iterations more recently of work about people living in these kinds of housings, these forms of housings, whether it's um, Andrea Dunbar and Chloe Bernard's wonderful The Arbor seven years ago or Andrea Lucas Zimmerman's estate, A Reverie, just two years ago, about the end of the Hagerston estate, or in a fictional mode, even uh, Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher, about Glasgow during the garbage strike and how one navigates that environment and those streets And then the work of Eduardo Coutinho, the Brazilian documentary filmmaker, not a woman, not queer, but incredibly important, who I spent an issue of Film Quarterly, which I now edit, dedicated to, um, who went out beyond the Greysonian model to speak to people and who invented a mode of documentary that he called a cinema of listening and that others have called a cinema of conversation. And the piece that he made, Edificio Master, shot in one housing block in a poor neighborhood in Rio, But it's not just about what we get to see or who makes it, but how we get to see and where. And so the proliferation of these new platforms, how they're changing documentary, how they're changing it for all of us, queer filmmakers, feminist filmmakers, every filmmaker of every kind, how the frame is being expanded, how the platforms are multiplying, and yet, as we know reinforcing the same old parameters, the same old walls, the same old exclusions. And yet for a minute, there's always a space of contradiction where there's an opening that could emerge in these moments of transition. And so in Latin America now, in Brazil and Argentina, people are making something called ninja cinema. And why is it a ninja cinema? Because it can only be seen live. It's only shown live, so that therefore it can't be censored because no one knows it exists until it's happening. And so people are broadcasting, so to speak, from demonstrations, from events, from performances, on Facebook Live, notoriously used in the case of Flandre Castle, whose police killer just got exonerated, using Periscope, using different kinds of modes to reach different kinds of audiences and a new kind of agitprop, whether it's something like Chalk Girl that popped up recently on the Guardian shorts page, or whether it's the op-docs that pop up on the New York Times, or the AJ Plus shorts that use text on screen so you don't have to have the sound on to even understand what's going on, or the new platform that Laura Poitras has created called Field of Vision, short pieces talking about urgent issues. But the urgency cannot be only, only, in these kinds of forms. It has to extend across the whole range of media, up and down the status ladder, up and down the spaces, that can be mobilized but for documentary before I leave that I just want to make a plea to move on from the notion of storytelling which is overwhelmed and overtaken everyone's idea of documentary I'm telling stories and I think that's very nice but what happened to investigations what happened to exposés what happened to looking under the rock to see what's hiding there in this so-called post-factual moment we need that desperately But we also need, and this is my next urgency, we need new forms of address. We need new rhetoric. And I think this is an area where film and video inside the academy and inside the movie theaters have fallen behind. That we don't know how to reach generations trained online. We don't know how to reach members of the public shaped by the post-factual era, shaped by the rumors and the lies why did people vote for Brexit? What did they think they knew? What do they think they understood? What do people who watch Fox News in the United States think they are learning? And how on earth can our mediums, our media, our ways of storytelling and investigations, the lights on our screens, how can they be directed to form a counter-argument, to form and shape the kinds of counter-realities that we see in our lives? So we need new forms of address and we need imagination. We can't look to Hollywood for these models. We can't look to the mainstream cinema for these models as desirable as that financing might seem to be. I think that cinema has to stop coloring inside the lines. We have to move out of these established tracks I think there's a kind of complacency that's set in of how we created new sectors 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and have been living in those lanes, have been swimming in those lanes ever since. Well, I think the lanes have changed. They're trenches now. And I think we have to create new meanings and lines of connection, correspondences, as I once called it. And one of the great pleasures of of this week has been hearing some of my words hurled back at me that I've forgotten. It's been kind of a treat. So thank you. And to look back at our past, I mean, the past is not a scrap heap. I don't believe in that notion of progress. The scrap heap of the past is full of clues to the future. It's full of ways to move forward. The early feminist cinema that came out of and with came of age with the early, early women's film festivals was so powerful with its force of discovery and with its gathering of audiences. We need that kind of mobilization and magnetization again. The energies of the new queer cinema were legendary, deservedly legendary. Why could it happen? It could happen because people were mobilized, because of the AIDS epidemic, because people were dying. Well, once again, people are dying, and we need new inventions. They must be reinvented. They must be redeployed and reimagined. Films that can capture the imagination can change the culture. Don't forget, I always love to say, you don't have to elect a movie. There are ways to change culture through film in ways that culture can't be changed in any other way. So another urgency, this question of intersectionality that people have been talking about so much, so much more, considering that the legal critical legal studies scholar Kimberly Crenshaw coined the expression in the 80s. It's funny how these things have come of age. The Bechtel test has come back, Julie Dash has come back, Kimberly Crenshaw's term has come back. So you can see sometimes it's not invention, it's a revisiting. Um, But I think that intersectionality, increasingly, I think, has to be earned, not just learned. There's a fine line between intersectionality and cultural appropriation. And where are the films that can be so properly intersectional? Where's the film on the lesbians who co-founded Black Lives Matter? Where are the films on the queer people who form the core of the dreamers, the undocumented youth in the United States, Where are the stories of the queer refugees coming on these boats through Lampedusa or or through Lesbos? And I just heard from Michelle Aaron, who'll be up with me later, that there's a new film that was just at Sheffield called Mr. Gay Syria. So maybe those films are coming. But we have to know these lives. We have to understand who we're living in these cities with, who we're living in these neighborhoods with or not. We need films that tell those truths, but we also need films that imagine alternative truths, alternate realities, different ways of living, different ways of thinking. The screens can lead us there, if they dare, if we look. And so I would love to think of a cinema of urgency, a cinema that can live up to that term. And I'm calling for work that conjures and to conjure the past, to conjure our pasts and also to conjure the past of our mediums and our histories, our theories and our criticisms, to look back for inspiration and to redeploy that, whether it's the revival of Daughters of the Dust that's going on now in all kinds of places. Um, there's a new season of Yvonne Rainer's work coming up in New York. I know there's been one here. Sally Potter's Gold Diggers, which is available finally after so many years. The early work of Derek Jarman, the work of Isaac Julian, who just won the Charles Wollaston Award for Western Union Small Boats, the early work of Todd Haynes with Poison and Superstar. As much as I love the new work, which I'd begun to call a, a nostalgia for repression, I said, this is where queer cinema has ended. We're all nostalgic for the days of repression. And and it's so glorious. I mean, how gorgeous to be Carol back in the day. Um <laughs> And yet, the ferocity of that early work, when there wasn't the leisure of such nostalgia, because it was all around. Who will tell the tales to inspire us to take action? Where are these filmmakers? Where are these stories? Where are these investigations? Where are these truths? How can they be pictured? How can they be seen? Where can we find them? And it brings me around, in a way, climactically or anticlimactically, to the film we're going to see tonight, Because that was one of the first works of Cuban cinema I ever saw. I'd seen, you know, one or two of the classics, Memories of Underdevelopment, Lucia, some of those early, early works. But I was privileged to be invited in 1978 to go to Cuba. And it was before the film festival in Havana had even started. And it was the first time U.S. uh, critics and scholars had been invited. And we went, a number of us. And uh, they were just finishing up a project to restore this film by a young Cuban director who had died very tragically while in post-production on her first feature, and it was Sara Gomez. And uh, the late Tomás Gutiérrez Alea had been her mentor, and he was finishing the film, uh, knowing what she was doing. She was recording the soundtrack. She was doing some of the final editing, but he worked very closely with her and with some others of her friends' worked to finish the film. And there's an interesting story behind it showing here in 35 millimeter because why would a rough black and white film, part documentary, part fiction, be made in 35? Well, because they didn't inherit 60 millimeter technology in Cuba. They inherited the American commercial technology that had been there up until the 1959 revolution they had 35 millimeter movie theaters and so they had to make 35 millimeter films to educate the population entertain the population so apart from television what they had was 35 and she had somehow got her hands on some 16 millimeter equipment so they had to go through this whole process of salvaging the 16 and transferring to 35 that held it up as much as finishing the post-production or so we were told And she had died, and we had heard this story by a Canadian then filmmaker, Vivian Libosch, who we saw the night before we left, who said, oh, you have to go and see this family because they're still in such grief four years later. And so we did. We went and we met Sada Gomez's mother and father and little daughter and talked to them and learned about her life and learned the story of how she had died in an asthmatic attack on the night that her small daughter was hovering between life and death in a hospital. Her mother was a santera, a practitioner of santeria. And Sara herself allegedly made a pledge that night, take me, let my daughter live. And the doctors had told her, if your daughter survives tonight, she will live. But if she's going to die, she's going to die tonight. And that night her daughter lived and Sara died in an inexplicable extreme asthma attack. And so this myth um, really impressed us all. And we went there and we talked to them and we got to see the film I was very, very marked by it. And today, people talk about hybridity very easily, but that was not a model then. The fact that she moved between fiction and documentary in ways that we don't do now, in rather a different way, was very groundbreaking, and the film became inspiring. It was shown in cinema clubs. It was shown at Third World Newsreel. People talked about creating a new radical film practice that could do this. And Sada herself had been an early follower of black liberation. She was supposedly the first Cuban to wear an afro on the island. Uh, she had met everybody that came from the United States. But my friend, Justo Perez Quintana, who had grown up with Sara, they were best friends, said that she'd grown up, as he put it, as a, as a good little Negro girl who played the piano. And then she came and became a radical black filmmaker, and I would argue feminist filmmaker, who wanted to smash these boundaries formally as well as in terms of content. She'd come out of documentary. She was a documentary filmmaker, and she didn't want to leave that behind when she moved into fiction. But she did move into fiction. And you'll see this is very much a 70s film. Certain kinds of 70s films have not weathered well. They sometimes seem kind of clunky in terms of their dramaturgy or in terms of their characters. But hopefully you will bear with Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns. Because what she has done is, I would say, intersectionality avant la lettre. She has put race and class and gender. Together in this work, official knowledge and street knowledge, Catholicism and Santeria, all into one film because precisely they were all in her. She fought the leadership to tell her story. To this day, she's the only Cuban woman of any color to make a feature fiction film in what remains of that industry, which is pretty much not much remains. And I would say what she did, it wasn't called intersectionality. But very much, to use the term from Santeria, it could be called syncretic, the way in which different seemingly oppositional practices coexist in layers under one another, borrowing from each other, learning from each other, enriching and infusing each other. Um, That's what she was up to. And little did I know we'd be here screening this film at the very moment that a maniacal U.S. president has rescinded all the openings to Cuba and once again isolated the United States from the island. So it's fitting that we should be seeing this. I'll be curious to know what you think of it, and I'll be especially happy to be back up here on stage with Michelle Aaron, who's come to town for it, to talk about the film, the keynote, and ideas that you may have about what cinema and video need to be doing now, how this moment of urgency can be met and how all of us cannot abrogate our own responsibility, our own mission. So, thanks so much.
4: Something that I was reading, uh, you said in Chick Flicks, you talked about the historic mission. And I think you were talking about a film at the time. In fact, maybe it was this film. Mm-hmm. I, I won't could ask be. if you were It could have it been, good. exactly. Now, putting that together with this idea of a cinema of urgency, I wonder how we achieve or how filmmakers achieve that cinema of urgency, perhaps when they're not living under the conditions of revolution in the way that Gomez was in the post-revolutionary condition or in the way that other people have been and are today, but maybe perhaps the aspiring filmmakers in this room. Mm -hmm. How might those films be
0: made? Mm -hmm. Well... I think I'm better at the questions than the answers, uh, I'm afraid to say. You know, I remember talking with uh, Gutierrez-Elea a few years later, and he was lamenting, observing that you could no longer make a film in Cuba by just going out into the street and pointing your camera wherever because, you know, the revolution wasn't happening anymore like this bulldozer knocking down buildings. In fact, it's probably been a long time since any bulldozer knocked down a building in Havana. <laughs> but, um, and I think that that was already starting to be the case when she made this, really. But he was lamenting that it was harder that you had to go inside people to find it. You couldn't just go out into the streets. You had it had become interior rather than exterior, which I then used to talk about a new Latin American cinema in the 80s when that happened or oh, when I thought that happened. So I suppose you know you have to live in terrible times would be the, the easy answer uh, to make those kinds of films. But I do think that our historic moment is calling out for a new kind of practice, and I'm not sure what it is. I wish I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I would write a different article, maybe. Mm-hmm. What startled me tonight about this was that I, and I just thought I'd mention it since I didn't beforehand. You know, I talked about her dying young. She was 31 when she died. She made this film when mm. she was 30. I mean, that's kind of incredible. Mm. It doesn't feel like a film by somebody who's 30, 31. And yet it, it is. And, and that's also something to think about in terms of her mentality, her own aspirations and what she thought was important mm. and urgent. I know you
4: said earlier about you've had lots of comments coming back and it wasn't deliberate that I wrote these down previously, <laughs> even though I obviously want to please you.
0: Um, <laughs> well, I can't really complain about well,
4: it. And also what was so, so intriguing to me, this actually comes on Chick Flicks page 101. And you say, a film that in no way condescends to its subjects. Mm -hmm. Now, that to me is so fundamental to any cinema of urgency because it's about a kind of critical perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think I've I've mentioned this before, something that Michael Warner said many years ago, talking about queer theory and talking about ethics in specifically queer terms. And he said, a queer ethic connects with cutting through every hierarchy in the room. And somehow for me, that has always been an incredibly powerful idea. And then reading what you said about this film in terms of her not condescending to anyone, and perhaps connecting to that sense of the queer agenda, the intersectional agenda. I sort of feel like intersectional had to come back and pick up where queer, which I think was inherently intersectional in its, in its first moments, yeah. sort of Ought faded. To be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I do think that there's a way in which she's piercing through all of these different worlds with this because clearly she's not Mario, you know, and and yet she's not that nice white bourgeois teacher either. So where is she? Where is her voice located in this? And Or Germinal, uh, the sound recordist, who was her boyfriend at the time. And the film was often misinterpreted as being against Santeria because of the disapproval of the Inigo, the cult that he, you know, had been involved with, which was a different, particularly different form of Santeria. And the film's also, I think, been... Misunderstood because of that kind of um, narration, the English voiceover narration, and I remember people saying they were sure if Asada had still been alive, she would have changed that because it it wasn't quite the effect that she wanted. But they were gonna—I think they were saving money on subtitles, yeah. so it's like, oh, this is the voiceover. We can just have a separate English narration for it yeah. that then throws it a bit. But I do think that this question of not condescending to the subject is really important, and it's it's what I've now started calling legibility. That the work should be legible to its own subjects, to the people who are the collaborators on the other side of the camera. And I think it is fundamental, and yet I think that there are a lot of films that violate that, that are very, very far away from that kind of practice and um, doesn't seem to bother anyone.
4: I think it's the majority, and interestingly, in some ways, those films that are often focused precisely on the opposite can still f- fall foul of exactly that that, mm-hmm. c- that kind of notion. But she's not afraid of showing the mess. But neither of you, that's what's is so wonderful about your books, is that they're so rich. <laughs> They're very messy. No, <laughs> no, I don't mean, the, of course I don't mean that. I mean the, the mess of life. Yeah. And that yeah. that's the important stuff. Yeah. They're not afraid of telling it how it is and whether that's about opposing, you know, any kind of institutional theoretical uh, zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. It's about being honest to yourself and to the text and to the times.
0: Well, you know, I, I always like to say that I grew up in a kosher house and that it gave me a lifelong um, attachment to contamination. That... <laughs> I, I have I have a horror of purity campaigns, which I think is served me well in the United States. So as soon as I hear anyone set down the rule of how it's supposed to be, the minute they lay down the law, I have to start transgressing it. But I do think it goes back to that kosher household. Which by the way was it was kosher inside the house, but then when we went on vacation, suddenly there were no rules anymore. It was sort of like you it was carnival and you didn't have to follow the rules anymore. And so, you know, you go off to Cape Cod and you you could eat bacon and lobster because you weren't home you know so maybe it also prepared me for these illogical transgressions i don't know that's <laughs> sorry wonderful. i couldn't resist no, it.
4: no i now have a, a new favorite ruby richard <laughs> that's great how are we doing we have a roaming mic and right please can i ask you. that you wait till the mic comes to you otherwise it messes up the sound
0: yeah
3: thanks great stuff ruby that was just great one of my questions here is you know, I get what you're saying, this idea of legibility, really beautiful word. And, but, the, but you're also talking to new urgencies and, you know, millennials who are the kind of online generation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's some great stuff going on on telly, but at the same time, we, in the cinema, it demands this of us, which is to sit in a space and have a time bound durational experience of event together in our differences and, you know, talk that through afterwards. And that's such a valuable thing. But, you know, what, how? Because the cinema is this a massive PR machine. And outside of that, these spaces of meeting the other and having those conversations, bringing audiences into that without that cash, basically, without that PR machine, how are we going to do it? So it's these troubling contradictions, really, you know?
0: Well, you're raising a lot of the really pertinent issues. And my thoughts are pretty much with yours, like, how do we solve this? And I think there are some links that haven't been put in place still between the online and the brick and mortar universes. And I'm thinking that there must be some way to try to connect those up through events that people haven't really conceived of properly yet. We're showing um, Strong Island, which will be the London premiere. It's just been at Sheffield, and it will be going out on Netflix. And um, I was at the Ford Foundation for a meeting about it in the fall, and it was a meeting for people discussing how it could be used in organizing around questions of the justice system and questions of racial justice. And it's a wonderful, wonderful film. I really urge you to come back to see it. But some of the people there had a hard time with it because it's not instrumental. It's not a film that's made to just go out the door and be shown as a legal brief. It's very personal. It's set in a family. It's very much about black masculinity. and. Uh, Coming out of that, I ended up talking to somebody who'd gone recently to work for Ford. And he was all excited because he was living in Harlem. And he said he'd come out the door to take out his garbage. And there were people out in the street. And they were involved in this really, really, really agitated conversation and really discussing something with great passion. And he was curious what was going on. Like, had there been a robbery on the block or what was happening? And then he listened in and discovered they were all talking about Ava DuVernay's 13th the documentary about the history of the criminal justice system and slavery that was going out on TV and online. And all these people in his neighborhood had seen it and were talking about it. And he said, when is the last time that ever happened? So even though it had been atomized viewing, because it had hit that week, and it was also the opening night film of the New York Film Festival, and it was getting all of this push and critical mass in the culture at large, they all knew about it. They were all seeing it right that week, and they were discussing it. And it was the audience it was intended for. It wasn't a film festival audience. It was a black neighborhood audience. And he was so thrilled. He had just come to work, and he said, this, I'm working here now, and look, look what effect this has had, and that we can think about this in this way. And Strong Island's a very different film, but it will go out on Netflix. So what does that mean? Who the hell is watching Netflix, and what algorithm is delivering their choices to them, right? We don't know. But I think there are some in-between spaces that need to get created to make some of these linkages. And you're right, we're not meeting I mean the other. We're not even meeting each other. Uh, we're not even meeting people we've known for years because we're all like too busy or too atomized. But amusingly, I mean, this film ends in this way because Cuban film at that moment, was dedicated to having what they called open endings because they would then put the lights on in the whatever halls they were showing the films in or movie theaters and get people to continue the argument and have these debates. And there were a number of Cuban films from this period that end that way with their notion of the open ending. So... Some of these questions have to be figured out structurally in terms of the work itself, and some of it has to be figured out, I think, in in ways that we are using the online platforms and how we bring them offline. We don't have a good online, offline uh, shuttle at the moment. It's it's kind of one or the other. You know, talking to young people, talking to my students, they do not understand the notion of the public. When I say to them, when you're watching these alone, at home, don't you miss you know, being in an audience with other people? Don't you miss being part of a public? And they really don't understand the word public. They don't understand what I'm talking about. And they say, but yes, I'm, I'm watching it with all my friends. We're all online at the same time. And you know, we've got Facebook chat open, or we have something else open. And so we're all watching it together. Like, what are you talking about? So there's something that I don't understand and something that they don't understand. And in between us, I think, might be clues to how we can start to look for ways to reconfigure that circuit.
4: I'd like to pick up on that a little. And it's also in response to what you were saying in your cinema of urgency. Isn't there one? I mean, certainly as someone who, well, having spent many years watching lots and lots of films about... Atrocity mm-hmm. <laughs> and war crimes and ex and I've been watching a lot of films from uh coming out of the Arab uprisings as well. Those films seem to me to be having many of those qualities of you know not condescending to their subjects. My struggle with it is no
0: mention of queer here um mm-hmm. and I wondered what the queer would be. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's my curiosity about the Black Lives Matter film that hasn't been made yet or the Dreamers film that hasn't been made yet. That probably needs to be a fiction film if it's to work that way. It needs to be more like a Fruitvale Station than some than 13th. I don't know. We, we haven't seen it yet. Uh, and yeah, gender tends to always eternally move to the back of the bus with these things because something else is seen as more urgent. There's always a hierarchy somehow with an urgency that I would want to dispute. This is where I just keep thinking that we need to figure things out and that even though the urgent documentaries coming from different parts of the world are landing at the documentary festivals, where are they moving outside of there? How are people finding them? And then what are they doing with that? And do we have those kinds of documentaries for our own lives, whether it's here in London or off in San Francisco or off in New York? I mean, San Francisco has been beset by horrible criminal evictions for more than five years now, most recently of a 99-year-old woman who then died from the stress of being forced to leave her home. And this is happening all over the city, which is now, you know, a kind of Google waiting room or something. And I haven't seen a film about that yet. I mean, I've seen a documentary about the evictions made by a student of mine, a grad student of mine, which I'm thrilled with. But This isn't the stuff of narrative still. It's not the stuff of drama still. And television is doing a lot. And television is very exciting. But it still hasn't reached some of these places. A lot of our lives seem to not be passing in front of cameras, at least not yet. And I I know it's not an instant feedback loop. And maybe it's a bit silly to expect so. But I think that times are so dire that people need to be doing this, need to be thinking about this. Yeah.
4: Thank you so much for showing us this film. I can remember seeing it when it was screened briefly in Britain in the 80s. But what surprised me in, in seeing it again was speaking of hierarchies. There's the Workers' Council, which is an explicitly patriarchal institution. The father of the protagonist is the chair of the council. It's entirely men or nearly entirely seems men? seems to be entirely men. Yeah. I'm curious about how those hierarchies, were seen to be critiqued or not critiqued in the film?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's not critiqued in the film, uh, frankly. I think it's the workers' council of that factory. So they're very gendered universes between who's teaching and who's working in the factory. I don't think there's a critique of the father. I think there's a kind of tacit acceptance of some of these so-called revolutionary formations. That certainly wouldn't be true of a film made today. I don't think there's a critique of uh, gender within that kind of workplace situation. There's a critique of gender within the relationship, and it's really Yolanda's critique of how she's being treated. But um, the revolution was less than partial when it came to gender, and frankly, when it came to race. Um, I think it did some things very well and some things very badly, and now it's kind of all fallen apart. I think just to say, she'd been documenting situations in different neighborhoods in documentaries, and a lot of these documentaries are available now. They didn't used to be. And I know people are starting to work on them, about life in, in the slums, about questions affecting women who couldn't afford child care, I mean, all those kinds of things. And very explicitly here about how... Badly women are fearing inside their own relationships, whether it's the woman with too many kids or the one who's being beaten by the husband or boyfriend or whatever. And you see this attempt within this fictional couple that she puts at the center of the film to work through that in some kind of way, still left arguing at the end, the same way the workers in the factory are still left arguing at the end. We don't return back to the school. But I think that's kind of as far as things got at that moment. And she was clearly trying to push it with some of this, and other parts she wasn't pushing. But this would have been the first of many films. I mean, it's, it's very sad. It doesn't explain why no other woman ever made a feature film well, in Cuba, say? because yeah. that same patriarchal structure of the Workers' Council was the same patriarchal structure of Icaic, of the Film Institute. It was horrific. It was ridiculous.
4: Could you say something about how the film was received, if at all?
0: Um, I don't know, because you always got this through other Cubans that you talked to. So we were at the Film Institute. Actually, it hadn't been released yet that first time. There was a lot of support for her on the part of Tomás Gutiérrez Alea, Titón. But Santiago Álvarez hated her and didn't want to you know, deal with her. And even within the hierarchy of fiction filmmaking, it, I doubt that she would have made the film if it hadn't been Gutiérrez Alea as her mentor championing her. And Julio Garcia Espinosa, who's also credited in the credits, also supporting her. So I have no idea, really, how it was received. And all of that is, you know, how were films received in Cuba? I mean, what do you say? Who gets to go to the movie theaters? Who's there? What do they say publicly? What do they say privately? It was always a very complicated set of data, shall we say. Uh, Was it received as enthusiastically as it was in the US or in certain parts of Britain, certain parts of the US? I don't know. I think that people within the Film Institute really valued it. But to what extent it went out and actually entered into these kinds of sectors that she was trying to reach once she wasn't there to carry it, I don't know.
4: I'm very sorry, but we have to oh. draw it to a close already. Okay. So I just have to thank Ruby for an amazing talk and for amazing discussion and for bringing the film to us. And thank you f- to you, too.
2: Thanks.
0: Thanks, Michelle. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone.
2: Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with B Ruby Rich. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like to support Film at the Barbican, you can subscribe and rate us via Apple Podcasts or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash screen talks archive. And we're always keen to hear your thoughts. You'll find us on social media at Barbican Centre.